as you're making your way there, I'll take a moment to introduce myself to anyone who may not know me. I'm Kyle Jones, serve as lead pastor here, and I'll just echo what the other brothers have said this morning. We're glad that you're here today to worship with us, and uh, praise God. You get, I don't know if there are bonus points in the kingdom of heaven, and sure, I'm sure there aren't, but if there were, uh, you would get some for being here on the opening weekend of deer season. So uh, praise God. Well, we're glad that you're here today. And uh, if you have your Bible, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians is found in your New Testament. And uh, it's after the book of Colossians here, or sorry, Galatians. And then um, you'll find it there. Um, Ephesians chapter 5. As you're turning there, just kind of take a second to catch you up. We were in a series we've called Happy the Home, God's Design for Families. Now, Happy the Home is a phrase that comes from an old hymn that says, Happy the Home, uh, whose God is in their midst, or when God is there. And, uh, and this is true. And so we've been looking at how do we orient our lives and our hearts and our minds, our souls around uh, the Lordship of Christ in the home. How does his lordship, how ought his lordship affect the way that we think about things like manhood and womanhood and boyhood and girlhood. Uh, and so we've been looking at those things. Uh, now we're getting into the final stages of the series in which uh, today we're going to deal with marriage from new creation. I talked to you weeks ago on marriage from creation, just God's design for biblical, uh, what we would call now biblical marriage, but his, his divine design for marriage. And so we're going to uh, build on that today by looking at it from a new creation standpoint. Now, what do I mean from new creation? Has God created a new marriage? No, but God has created new people. Amen. He's, uh, he's taken hearts that were far from him and brought them near to him by the power of his spirit. He's taking hearts that were once spiritually uh, dead, called uh, a rock, and he has turned them into hearts of flesh that are now beating and alive uh, for his purposes and for his glory. And so the fall of man, which we looked at in Genesis chapter 3, again, weeks ago, uh, this fall of man wrought in us or brought about in us uh, a sinful nature. We have a propensity uh, by birth and from birth to be sinners, uh, just simply by being human. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are in need of salvation. And that was the answer there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is that there would be one who comes from the offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. We now know uh, that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in which uh, when he comes on the scene in Matthew's gospel, it is said there of him that he is the one who will save his people from their sins. Amen? And so anyone now who places their faith in Christ by God's grace has entered into, or is counted, I should say, as a new creation. They have become literally a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, 17 says, uh, you are new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so now, by, we live by the Spirit rather than by the flesh. Our, our spirits have been set free now to live for God. The Spirit of God moves us then toward Christ-likeness. 
as we behold Christ, as we abide in Christ, which means that we love him and we obey his commands, as we see in John chapter 15, those things begin to transform the way we think about things, the way that we operate in uh, our design, the way that we live, right? Again, manhood, womanhood, boyhood, girlhood. What, why do these things matter? What are their purposes, especially as we think about family units or households? We are no longer bound. As Christians, you are no longer bound to your sinful state. Rather, you have been bound to Christ by the Spirit so that you can now live Spirit-empowered lives of godliness for the glory of God in, the, in this present age. Now, you can live for God. Amen? And this is an incredible thing to which we should do more shouting and jumping and screaming and dancing, but amens will do, right? Because this is... Uh, not about our own boisterous exclamations, but it's about what Christ has done in our lives. And we want to be grateful to this. Brothers and sisters, what I'm saying is that this God-wrought redemption in you is worthy of great praise. It's worthy of praise. And as we've seen in this series, this redemption of Christ extends to every corner of the universe. There is Nothing that is outside of his lordship. Though we see it in part now, we will know it in full on the day of Jesus Christ when he is revealed to us again at his second coming. But the end part now sometimes can be so minimalized that we think it does not extend to really anything at all of much importance. We just kind of overlook the end part ruling of Christ today. It's not, but what I want you to know is that it isn't some small amount. Christ does not rule in small amounts. He reigns on high. His lordship extends to every matter. He wields his powerful hand for the salvation and the redemption of his people, the redemption of creation. And he does this for the glory of his own great name. He is at work even now in this church, in this moment, in these seconds and minutes and hours that we have together. He is at work among us, transforming our hearts and minds, transforming our homes and our church so that the glory of Christ reigns supreme. Amen? This is why we've gathered today. And so there's not one square inch that Christ is not Lord over. There's not one matter that he is not Lord over. And of this, his lordship, I hope that we are a people who are well convinced of these things, that Christ is worthy then of our submission. We're convinced of this and we're willing to make him Lord of every area, even the dark corners of our own hearts. He is Lord and we are not. He is Lord and we are not. So then he must also be Lord of our marriages. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we read the word of God? Again, Ephesians chapter 5, I'll read verse 22 through 33 with you today. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever, sorry, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the time that we have now. Uh, to hear from it and to have it preached. Uh, But Lord, I do ask that you would take your word as the seed that we need, plant it deep into our hearts, and may our hearts be found to be good soil, Lord, soil in which uh, the seed is planted and roots grow deep so that we might bear fruit that is uh, even 20 and 40 and 60 and 100-fold that of which we thought. God, we thank you for your kindness toward us to give us uh, revelation, special revelation through your word. Uh, may we exalt it above the words of a man. May we exalt it above our own thoughts and our own heart's desires, and may we submit ourselves to it today. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sorry, I forgot to say that afterwards, but we can't not say it. You may be seated. I want to take a moment to discuss just the high value of marriage in the home as we think about these verses. And so uh, just a few verses before this text that I've read for you today, we read these words that in uh, verse 17, so just a few verses up, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so there's a command here, be filled with the Spirit, And then there's fruit of the command. One is, or actions of this command. One is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This is one of the things that we do in corporate worship, right? We come together and we sing. And this morning we have sung some wonderful truths together. We've proclaimed those to one another and to our own hearts uh, as we've done so. He goes on, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so, again, he says, understand the will of the Lord. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Be filled with the Spirit. Sing to one another. Make melody to the Lord in your heart. Give thanks always and for everything. Right? There's a whole sermon there, isn't there? (laughs) Give thanks always and for everything. That's important to remember even in your own marriage. As you face marriage difficulties and marriage woes and Uh, what seems like impossibilities, and and honestly, what seems like the devil is winning in some things. It is good and right for you to give thanks to God always and for everything, to have a posture of thankfulness to the Lord, even when things are not going the way that you would prefer. Amen? And he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So again, understand the will of the Lord. Be filled with the Spirit. And then I want to talk to you for a second about submitting to one another. Now, there's a group of egalitarians. Egalitarians are people who believe that there are no gender distinctions. 
They claim that since we are all one in Christ, women and men are therefore interchangeable when it comes to functional roles in society, church leadership, and so in the household. And so such a group of people can take a verse like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and they can twist it to further their godless agenda, that there are no roles, functional roles for man and woman within society or church leadership or the home. Uh, if they would only see that the Apostle Paul has not left this verse without any description, right? He's not left this without further understanding of what it means to submit one another out of reverence, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, and if they had, if he had not, then maybe they could make a case. Now, the only issue with even trying to do that would be the rest of the scriptures. But at least from this passage, they might could try to do that. But alas, he did not leave us to wonder. He's not left us to think about what does this mean. He goes on to define what submitting to one another means. And he begins to look at households. And so he talks about wives submitting to husbands, children submitting to parents, bondservants submitting to masters. And within these relationships, every believer is called to submit to Jesus Christ our Lord and to one another in this sense. And so submitting to, submitting to one another out of reverence to Jesus Christ is foundational to all Christian relationships. This is how they flourish. This is how they grow. This is how uh, they do well in our lives. No believer is inherently superior to another believer. We're not superior to one another. Before God, we are. It is true that we are all equal in every way. And so then we submit to one another out of reverence for God. And that is especially seen in that we consider the interest of others. For in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Amen? So, if you are to become a godly church member, that is the kind of member who considers others' interest, uh, that, that becomes that kind of member, then you must first become a godly member of your own household. You must first learn to submit within the walls of your home. You must first learn to submit, one, to the lordship of Christ and whatever he commands of you as a man or woman or boy or girl there. You must learn those ways. And so this week we're looking at marriages, but next week we're going to look at the parenting relationship. Children, there will be a talk addressed just to you that you must hear from the word of the Lord that's good and right for you. And so... That is why Paul turns his attention now to the relationships in the home. But marriage is the highest value relationship within the home. For many, including professing believers, marriage simply becomes a contractual agreement in our day today. But that's not the God-ordained purpose of marriage. God ordains marriage to be a lifelong monogamous covenant between one man and one woman and so while there are acceptable terms for divorce, especially seen when one commits adultery against another, the high value of marriage is found in godly covenant for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do they part. Amen? So then couples can work through the worst of things, even adultery, to build marriages that honor Jesus Christ our Lord. After all, Jesus Christ himself is no stranger to Adultery, not that he committed it, but that we commit it often. Our hearts often yearn for another Lord. 
and to even give themselves over to that Lord frequently. Yet Christ remains ever faithful to his people by amazing grace and steadfast love. And so the posture of our heart as we consider marriage is first and foremost, it must be submission to Christ Jesus and his commands for marriage. What has he said? Therefore, what must I do? Amen? It's to ask the Lord, what is it that you want of me? How is it that you have spoken to husbands? How is it that you have spoken to wives? What is it that you're commanding of us? And then you ask the questions, are we left alone to, to do these things? By no means. You're given the very Spirit of God to walk in godly marriage as it pertains to your role as either a husband or a wife. God has not left you alone for these things. And all of this is for the good of your own soul and the good of your home. So, the thing I want to present to you today is this, and you can write this down. Godly marriage exists for the glory of Jesus Christ as Lord in our souls and homes. I'll give you a second to write that before I continue because I need a sip of water. I know, that was more than a sip, um, a guzzle of water. Godly marriage exists for the glory of Jesus Christ as Lord in our souls and homes. Let's look at the role of the wife, godly submission. Ephesians 5, through 24, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The first point of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is now addressed to wives, that wives should submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. Now what do we mean when we use the term submit, or when, what does Scripture mean, I should say, when it uses the term submit? Well, it means that you are willing to subject yourself to the will of your husband. Paul does not issue the command with a bunch of qualifications about who and which wives this applies to. Rather, it applies to every Christian wife. This is to be the posture of the wife's heart that I'm submitting to, I'm working on, working toward godly submission to my husband. That doesn't matter. That doesn't take into account what her own abilities may be or her education or her knowledge of Scripture or her spiritual maturity or any other qualifications that, sh that might be in relation to her husband, even seen as greater than her husband. Sister, it's true that you may indeed be more, more spiritually proficient than your husband, but your greatest spiritual work as a wife is godly submission. Right? And this is what uh, God in the curse, tells Eve that your desire will be for your husband and that your husband will rule over you. So in sinfulness, her desires were switched, and she now longs to be the ruler of the home. This is in a desire of her heart. And yet, God says, but he will continue to be in the place that I have set him as head over you. Now, we'll get into, in a moment, how that can work itself out in all sorts of ungodly ways. But for today, what, really what we're looking at is how does this work itself out in a godly way? Under new, as new creations, how does this play itself out? How do we submit, right? And so submission then is not, um, it, it, it is a posture of heart. It is not 
uh, obedience to a husband as a child obeys his parents. And so it's a posture of heart and a posture of the spirit for the wife. She offers her submission willingly and lovingly to her husband as to the Lord. She's saying, I'm going to obey the Lord in all of my life, especially in my marriage. And so submission, again, is not like the, the, the obedience of a child to their parents. God does require children to obey their parents, to show them honor. We'll see that next week. And in a similar fashion, God requires fathers to raise uh, their children with the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Yet in marriage, God requires a wife to offer her submission to her husband willingly and lovingly. And then he requires a husband to love his wife by nourishing and cherishing her. And so you can see the differences in the relationships of between parents and children and spouses to one another. Further, we see here that a wife is to submit herself to her, her own husband. This limits her submission to the man that God has providentially provided to her. God has placed that man and not all of those men over there in her home. Amen? She's to submit herself to her husband. He has placed her, uh, him over her. Similarly, God providentially placed the wife in the loving care of the husband. She submits to the man that she possesses as her own, and he loves the wife that he possesses as his own. And so they work together. Such submission, then, limits a wife's seeking after counsel or after care or protection or provision to especially her own husband's counsel, care, protection, and provision. Now, where he fails in these duties, the point I'm trying to make is that where a man may fail in these responsibilities, and he will, even godly men will fail in these areas. But that does not mean that she gets to run outside of the marriage to find comfort or care or provision in some way. She must remain submitted to her own husband. And so Paul finally grants the highest honor to submission by saying, as to the Lord. This is what it's grounded in. Sisters, because your supreme submission is to Jesus Christ as Lord, then your attitude and the posture of your heart is that you lovingly submit as Christ, uh, sorry, as an act of obedience to Christ. It is he, it is he, not me, not your husband, not anyone else, not even Paul. It is he that gives you the command to submit. He gives you the command as his will for you. Christ does. Regardless of how you might assess your husband's worthiness or spiritual condition. Again, we see such uh, verbiage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-5, through 5, dealing with husbands that uh, potentially are unbelievers here. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if someone, uh, some sorry, do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. And so by obedience to Christ, by submission to your own husband, you may win the heart of a husband to the lordship of Christ Jesus if he is not yet submitted to such. And so this is a great help 
in those marriages where the woman feels as though she's the only one concerned about the spiritual nourishment of the home, about the spiritual matters of the home. She's the only one concerned about these things. She remains committed to Christ, committed to submitting to her husband. Now, there are needed caveats, as there are in all things, but the command is clear. You should submit to your husband as to the Lord. That submission, however, does not require you to disobey God. God would never ask us to submit in such a way that we would also be disobeying his rule of our lives. For example, if your unbelieving husband commands you to never pray or to never read the scriptures, then you must possess the strength of Daniel in your home and disobey such orders. Follow God. Another caveat, submission does not require you to remain in abusive relationships. You have a God-given right to protect your flesh and the flesh of your children. Separation in such cases, not divorce, is a possible um, outcome. Separation, hoping for reconciliation, looking unto reconciliation, seeking to get help. The submission seen here in this passage is in deference to the ultimate leadership of the husband for the health and harmonious working of the marriage relationship. And so this kind of submission exists to the glory of Jesus Christ as Lord of your soul and of your home. And so I ask you, sisters, or I submit to you first, and then I'll ask. I submit to you this first. God commands you to submit to your, uh, to your husband as to the Lord. And so now the question, what will it take for you to begin or to continue to walk faithfully to his command? Godly marriage exists for the glory of Jesus Christ as Lord in our souls and in our homes. We'll see it more how it exists in our souls as we observe the husband's relationship to the wife. And we'll see how this also causes homes to flourish. So now let's look at the role of the husband, which I believe is godly headship. There's godly submission for the wife. There's godly headship for the husband. One great reason for the wife's submission is found in the headship of her husband. God establishes the husband as the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. This is what we read in Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, there are two indicators here in this passage of the husband's headship. The first is that it's explicitly stated. Right? And so we can't argue with it. He, Paul writes explicitly, and this is the most important indicator, right? Because anytime Scripture says something, we must yield ourselves to what the Scriptures say and not what our own hearts might defiantly express. The second indicator of the headship of the husband is that the bulk of this passage addresses a husband's divine role and responsibility. This would have been normal in local churches in the first century. For the word of God to address men in such a way that they go and lead their homes in godly ways. You, you bear the responsibility of the spiritual temperature of your households, sirs. It, it's on us, brothers. It, it's on us. Now, we do this in, certainly in partnership with the helpmeet that God has provided to us. Absolutely. But the responsibility falls on the head of the husband, as Christ is his head and he is 
the head of his wife. The husband's headship or leadership of the home is not only God-ordained, but it's established to reflect Christ's own loving, authoritative headship of the church. And so as Christ has authority over the church, the husband has authority over his wife. However, the husband's authority is always subject to the authority of Christ. He is not left to do whatever his heart may desire in the home, no matter how frustrated he may be, no matter how out of kilter he may be, no matter how long the day at the office or in the field was, he must submit himself wholly to Christ Jesus. Amen? Jesus Christ is our Savior, brothers and sisters, from the dangers of sin and death and hell. And therefore, we submit to him willingly and lovingly as the one who has loved us and saved us. We now love him and obey him. Yet, the husband is also to be a type of Savior, a type of Savior, not the Savior, a type of Savior for his wife. He provides for, he protects, he preserves, and he loves his wife, leading her into blessing as she submits to his godly headship. This is the beauty of Christian marriage. But how is this supposed to happen? Well, it comes to fruition by the willing and loving submission of the wife alongside the loving and sacrificial headship of the husband. And so the next command comes to us. Husbands, love your wives. There in verse 25. I'll read. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. Now, I'm going to harp on this a bit more, but you cannot just quickly read over such verses because you hear the daunting task of what's being addressed to you as a husband. Right? We hear husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and then we just get exasperated to some extent. How can we do this? This is how. He, he says right here that he may, Christ, back up, that, uh, that Christ loved the church, gave himself for her. That's you and I, brothers. We are the bride of Christ as well, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so we cannot come to a text that demands so much of us, brothers, in which it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and then us get exasperated and say, well, how can anyone do that? And I've heard men do this. And I understand the difficulty in it. I, too, am a husband. This is not an easy task. I have selfish desires. I have things that I want, things that I hope for, Right? things that I will run after if I don't check all of those things at the door in submission to Christ. But you are not left alone. You are left with the very power of Christ Jesus. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 1 when he talks about how you have received the same power, the Holy Spirit which raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. And it's given to you as a sign and a seal of the covenant which God has with you in Christ Jesus. And so we don't walk into these command chapters in 4 through 6 and think, my goodness, how could we ever? 
No. We walk into it with glad submission. We walk into it feeling utterly empowered that God has not called us, God has not commanded us to do something that he is not also equipping us to do. By his very own spirit, he is sanctifying you. He's washing you so that he might present you in splendor one day, the day of Christ, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That is without anger problems. That is without aggression that is unchecked. That is without uh, a lack of self-control. That is without insert sin here. Amen. You will, brothers, be presented to Christ on the day of Christ as a perfect, spotless, blameless bride. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion. That's real power by faith in Christ, by the grace of God, through the Spirit of God being worked out in your own heart and soul and mind. And you need to know that. Sisters, the same power exists for submission. You too are being sanctified to become a godly wife, a godly woman, a godly young lady, a godly girl, right? Like this, this same power exists in all believers. Again, Ephesians 1, you were given the same power that raised Christ from the dead when you believed the gospel. The Spirit of God dwells in you, and it's sanctifying you, and it will come to completion. I paused reading to say all of that. Look at verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, as he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his Paul established authority. He established authority early on, submitting to one another. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as the head. He's given us authority, but now he moves on to responsibility. What are the responsibilities? The husband is the head of his wife, yet there are divine responsibilities as the head. It's not just some title you get to walk around wielding in your home. Amen. His supreme responsibility is to love his wife with the same fervor and the same unreserved, selfless, sacrificial love that Christ has for his church. And the same Christ who, in Philippians chapter 1, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verses 7, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers, that's the standard for godly headship in your home. It's that we sacrifice ourselves in order to love our wives as Christ has loved us. Within such sacrifice, we find that Christ sanctifies his bride. He washes her with the water of the word so that he may present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. 
And so that speaks, as I said a moment ago, to the depth of God's love for his people. And we saw in Titus last week that saving grace makes believers holy by the spirit and the word of God, which has come to them. And once you were not a people, but now you are a people for God's very own possession, solely because God saw fit to wash you by his spirit through his word. And one, the word became flesh. And secondly, as you encounter the word daily. And so then for husbands to love their wives as Christ loves his church, we must possess a sanctifying love. This is what we mean by sacrificial love. It's a love that sanctifies. Since divine love seeks to completely cleanse those who are loved, this is a MacArthur quote, from every form of sin and evil, a Christian husband should not be able to bear the thought of anything sinful in the life of his bride. And I will add, or in himself for that Because, Paul writes here, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. And so the greatest desire of a godly husband is that his wife become perfectly conformed to Christ. And so he leads her and himself to purity and conformity. Now again, I include himself there because this passage also contains the most compelling description of the one flesh union in Christian marriage that we have anywhere in the scriptures. A a Christian husband is to care for his wife with the same devotion that he would naturally manifest in himself as he's caring for himself. Even more so, he'll do it for his wife since his self-sacrificing love causes him to put her first. Ephesians 5.28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. None of you, brothers, if you were to be working, say you're building a table, and as you are working to cut your boards for your table, you get your thumb in the way of the saw, and you cut off your thumbs. You will not look at said thumb lying there next to the board that you're in the middle of cutting and say, well, that was a shame. Right? You will immediately tend to the bleeding flesh and the missing thumb. You will immediately do so. It's natural in you to nourish and cherish your own flesh, to work toward that which is good and right, for the survival of your own body. And the point of the passage here is that your wife is one flesh with you, and so you must count her as one flesh. You must work for that which is good in her. And you, you may say, well, of course, if she were to cut off her thumb, I would tend to her. But that's not the only thing we're talking about here, is it? We're talking about if she's bleeding emotionally. She's bleeding spiritually. Right? If there are hemorrhages, spiritual hemorrhages at work, and you can see those things, you tend to them. And if you can't see them and you don't have the wisdom to tend to it, 
you pray to God to grant you the eyesight and the wisdom to tend to it. You sacrifice the time to say, I'm going to take five minutes right now and I'm going to seek the Lord in this man. I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to devote myself to reading the scriptures so that when the hemorrhaging shows up, I have a word from the Lord to carry into the medical room. Amen? I have a word on my lips in which I can sanctify my bride, in which I can be sanctified by God in order to sanctify those in my care. Husband who loves his wife in these ways brings great blessing to himself from her and from the Lord. And that's exactly how God's economy works. When we obey the commands of God, we find great blessing on the other side of it. Again, in Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist prays that he says to the Lord, you have made known to me the paths of life. That's wisdom. That's insight. That's direction and instruction. That's understanding of where I go. He's saying, you have made known to me the paths of life and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Again, the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Again, the psalmist writes in Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, to obey the commands of God is to find the paths of life and to find the paths of life is to find the blessing of God. It's to to delight yourself in the Lord in such a way that there is true joy in your life even when things are not going how you'd like. We find great blessing on the other side of obedience. The blessings are not merely for ourselves. In fact, they will always extend to those around you because that is what a heart yielded to God produces. So then the pursuit of blessing is not wrong, brothers. It's pursuit of the promise that God gives you. It is good for you to hold on with great hope for the blessing of a godly marriage in which you're having to sacrificially love your wife even in the most difficult problems. You're learning to do this, which means that the posture of your heart is saying it's to nourish and to cherish her always. This is my goal. This is what I live for. Now, this does not mean Again, as our world today would have us think it means stop meaning that the wife becomes queen of the house and everyone must submit to her lordship. This is a false way of thinking. To nourish and cherish here is to care for and love her always, which will mean that sin must be addressed. That's what sanctification means. That's what it means to wash with the word. It's to help grow. It means that there will be disagreements, as we see in Genesis chapter 3 when the curse is renewed. She'll desire Uh, her husband's role, but he will rule over here. There's going to be conflict in marriage. If you've been married longer than 30 seconds, you know this. There'll be all manner of other things as well that you'll get to work through as God establishes joyful, Christ-centered marriages in your home. And so the posture of her heart is submission to her husband, and the posture of your heart is love to your wife. Again, you do this by nourishing and cherishing. These are twin responsibilities of providing for her needs so as to help her grow in Christ and to provide warm and tender affection to give her comfort and security. A a wife must know that she's protected. She must know that she is 
preserved and that she's provided for in the home, that she has everything that she needs for a life of godliness among her husband and children. Brothers, God commands you to love your wife as Christ loves the church, and this is good for your soul and your home. It's sanctifying you. But I ask, what will it take for you to begin to or to continue in faithfulness to his command? What areas do you need to grow in? Godly marriage exists for the glory of Jesus Christ as Lord in our souls and homes. And finally, I need you to know that marriage exists for the glory of Jesus Christ. Marriage exists for the glory of Christ, not the glory of Kyle or Patricia or some great home and future that we may build with generations who are good citizens. No, we want generations of people who are good citizens, sure, but they're good citizens because they joyfully serve Jesus Christ. It's for the glory of Christ. Ephesians 5, 31-32, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul writes, Then this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see what Paul does here? He, he grounds all of this, <laughs> submission and love, he grounds it all in God's divine design found at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In doing this, Paul emphasizes the permanence of marriage. He emphasizes the unity of marriage. This union of marriage is, is intimate and it's unbreakable. Which scripture makes clear by using the phrase hold fast. Let him hold fast. It has in mind the idea of gluing two things together or cementing two things together. And so Christian marriage is holding fast. Amen? In Christian marriage, you have hearts, you have two hearts. And you have two fleshes, <laughs> and that means you have two sin natures and two baggages <laughs> and, and two opinions and two differences and two ideas on how to squeeze the toothpaste bottle correctly and two of any number of things. And so in Christian marriage, these two things are wed together. They are melded together by the Spirit of God. And so for Christians in marriage, we understand that I am to hold fast to that woman who is so different, blessed, than I am. And she is to hold fast to that man who is so different, blessed, than she is. And that in the holding fast, God by the Spirit is working together I was uh, got to visit with teenagers a couple. Uh, sorry, I got to visit. I did do that, but I was thinking of a different conversation in which I was with college students. 
And we talked about this idea of how we have been told for a few generations now that the next generation is going to be world changers. And depending on what denomination you grew up in, you heard that a whole lot. And so you grew up thinking, man, I'm going to change the world. And then you had to go to high school, and then you had to go to college, and you had to get a job, and you got married, and you're like, when am I going to change the world? And we're seeing the fruit of such preaching. The, I'll share the rates with you next week, but the fertility rates of homes has dropped. Well, the fertility rates of human, of women has dropped significantly in the last 10 years, especially over the last 20 years, because people are deciding, I don't need to be married. I'm going to go change the world. I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to do what I want to do. But I submit to you that if you want to make an impact in the future, then you need to get married and you need to plead for the Lord to give you children so that you can be present in the future through their lives. You need to live as though you're going to have great-grandchildren. Because as I've told you before, there's a lot going on in Israel, and we don't know what any of that actually means. We can take all the guesses we want, but it is highly possible that the world will continue for another few thousand years. God gets to decide this. And so we cannot live as doomsday preppers. We must live as those who say, I have children in front of me. I have a wife in front of me. I have a church in front of me. I have people in front of me that I must commit myself to the Lordship of Christ so that I can impact their lives. Amen? Because eternity does come. It might not come with nuclear bombs, but it will come to all of us. And so discipleship 100% matters. And we must be proclaiming Christ and discipling those who profess faith in Christ so that the world may actually truly be changed. Amen? But it's going to come through your mundane life. Praise God for it. It's going to come through marriages that are difficult. It's going to come through raising children and being so frustrated you literally lose hair and it grays. It's going to come through those things because that's the way, that's the real way God has wired the world to work. And we must accept it. We must accept it. God commands you, brothers, to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And God commands you, sisters, to be resolved to submit to your husband as to the Lord. And he's going to empower you to carry it out in your homes as you both submit to his will for your lives. I am 100% sure of this. Also, because such marriages reveal something that was once a mystery. At one time, people didn't understand the statement in verse 31. That's why he makes the statement. He's bringing up something that people would have originally thought, what in the world does this mean? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But what we see now in the New Testament is that the mystery has been revealed. It's been revealed in Christ Jesus. Marriage is a sacred reflection of the magnificent and beautiful mystery of union between the Messiah and his church. And so then, he says, let each one of you 
love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The intimacy, the sacredness of the love relationship between believing spouses is to be a visual expression of the love between Christ and his church. And so we see that God's covenant relationship as a husband to his wife, often wayward wife, we should add, is one of the recurring themes all through Scripture. Just look at Ezekiel 16, Hosea 1 through 3, and Revelation 19, for example. In Christ, we see the full extent of God's love and marital faithfulness. Our marriages then should point to the same thing, that God is faithful, that he loves his church. God does not exist to make much of marriage, brothers and sisters. No. Marriage exists to show the world the glory of Christ and his church. Our marriages exist to make much of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so let us submit ourselves to his lordship and to follow his commands for how to build godly marriages in our home today. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that here in your word we see uh, commands for how we are to live and how we are to express ourselves and how we are to walk with Jesus as Lord. It's it, In godly marriages especially we see this in this passage that husbands are to love their wives and wives are to submit to their husbands. And so Lord, I ask now that you would grant to men and women the understanding of such a command the willingness to lovingly submit themselves to Christ and follow these commands, to work these things out in their homes. Lord, would you give them insight and wisdom on how to do this? Would you help them to seek counsel from other men and women who are doing this well? May we, as the body of Christ, encourage one another unto such beauty. God, I do pray that you would fill this church with godly marriages. And Lord, I know that, that, that any time you gather a crowd together, there's going to be hurt and pains and sorrows related to marriage. And so I ask now that you would minister your spirit to those hearts, that you would grant them comfort and care, that you would grant them reconciliation and hope Lord, help them to have the wisdom that they need in their situation to submit to you, to see you as Lord, even when things didn't go as they hoped, even when things have been ripped out from under. And may you save the souls of unbelieving spouses. May you bring them to repentance and faith in Christ. May you help them to submit themselves to the Lord Jesus and, if possible, to be reconciled to their spouse. Lord, we are in desperate need of you in these days. Father, I also lift up a prayer for anyone who is unbelieving at all, whether they be a spouse or not. Would you help them to see the love that Christ has and that he gave himself for us. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness 
of God. He bore our sin on his back to make propitiation for sins, to, to pay the price for our sins in full. That in him we have received true salvation, true forgiveness for our sins. When him we can be reconciled to you, Father, by the power of your Spirit. And so would you grant regeneration? Would you grant justification to your people? Lord, we love you.